Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the mainstream media's obsession with lockdowns, one veteran stand for John A. McDonald, and a recap on Iran's sham of an election. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North, Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021. I'm not even going to give you the count of how many days into two weeks to flatten the curve are. I did it for a little while, not necessarily specific days, but I'd say, oh, you know, we're, you know, 57 weeks into two weeks to flatten the curve or whatever. And the reality is it just got too depressing. And I've had a little bit of, what, what not lockdown envy, because I'm not envying the lockdown, but I guess anti-lockdown envy, seeing other countries around the world that have been reopening, people going to beach parties, going to nightclubs, concerts. Not that I go to beach parties, nightclubs, or concerts in the before times, but I'd like to know that I have the option, which I certainly don't in the province of Ontario. And now I'm even getting domestic envy, seeing other provinces that are in the process of opening up. Alberta last week announced that it is going to be wide open by Canada Day with just a basically no restrictions except for just a couple of very narrow areas like long-term care homes. That was how Premier Jason Kenney announced it. And then over the weekend, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, something very similar for Saskatchewan, restriction-free by July 11th. And if you look at all of these different jurisdictions, New York, which is not the model of how to handle the pandemic, New York has said, we hit our vaccination threshold, we're open, we're going restriction-free. Well, Ontario had the same number of people with their first doses as New York had with first doses, but Ontario was doubling down on the lockdown and continues to do so. The best that we might get is, ooh, maybe, just maybe you can get a haircut before July is over in Ontario. That, I mean, I'm long overdue, but that's basically the approach here. So even within Canada, you've got provinces that are opening up and others that are digging their heels in and saying no. And what's worse is that you have people that think this is okay, that think this is actually how you are supposed to run things. One of the big problems that I see looking around, especially in the mainstream media, there's an attitude of, I'm going to call it lockdown Stockholm syndrome. People that have now just allowed themselves to be consumed by this mindset that a lockdown is the only way to go. People who, by the way, have not dealt with the real losses that lockdowns have unleashed on people in society. People that don't have the elite jobs that let them work from home. People that don't have big houses with yards. People that are cooped up in small apartments. So the reality is a lot of the people that are cheering for lockdowns are the ones that have not had the same lockdown experience as a lot of the people that they are trying to govern and lord over. And one of the great examples of this is a piece in TVO, which is the Ontario provincial version of CBC, from one journalist who says, Dear Premier Ford, please don't reopen early. New cases are down, more and more Ontarians are vaccinated, but the numbers aren't where we need them to be right now. And I'm going to pick on this piece because it encapsulates the attitude that we see from a lot of other journalists when they're asking questions. Anytime someone speaks up and says, hey, we're opening, like happened with Jason Kenney at his press conference on, I think it was Friday, you get reporters that start asking, well, well, how can we open? Why are you opening? It's like people should be cheering for this. People should be saying, why has it taken so long? Not, are you sure we're ready to reopen just now? And I said months ago that we cannot allow ourselves to adopt a new normal. And this is what I fear and what I actually see is happening when we look around us. People have internalized this idea, this mentality, and they think this is the way a society is supposed to function. So Stockholm Syndrome is the best way to characterize it. People that now have been convinced that government is the dispenser of freedoms rather than simply the barrier for you to enjoy your freedoms. In this TBO piece, it says, I sincerely sympathize with businesses that have been closed, workers who have been disemployed, and even just citizens who want to do the things they would normally be allowed to do. You don't need an excuse to want a haircut or a pedicure. 
we are all owed our liberties back as soon as it's safe enough. It's the as soon as it's safe enough thing that we're getting stuck on right now. Liberties are liberties. And in times of crisis and times of emergency, these are the points when liberty is most important, but also sadly, when it is in the shortest supply. I'm going to talk in a few moments about the federal court decision that came down on Friday about hotel quarantine. And then this week, the adjustment to the hotel quarantine plan that the federal liberal government announced. But the reality is you are owed your liberties at any point and at every point. None of this will when it's safe enough because the reality is liberty is not in conflict with safety. And anyone who says liberty is in conflict with safety isn't looking at the science and I would argue is not particularly concerned with protecting liberty. They're looking for excuses. The pandemic has brought out the worst in a lot of people and continues to. And I've been sympathetic about this because I realize that this is going to manifest in very different ways for different people. But a video that really rubbed me the wrong way was this one that went viral over the weekend from a Toronto mall. Now, I don't know the people involved, but what you can glean from the video is that a woman was minding her own business, but was not wearing a mask. Now, she claims she has a medical exemption. Human rights law in Ontario says it's none of anyone's business. But take a look at what happens. This lady here is in the mall without a mask. Yep, got you. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. You don't have a mask on. What is your... Who are you? I've just come to the mall to pick okay, up Okay, yeah, sure. And you are... What is your threat. name? What is your You're name? You're a threat. Sir, everybody's complaining about her with no mask on. Everybody's got a mask. Sir, she's examination. Where? She told you. You believe what she says? I don't. The police needs to come, bro. This is not fair. I, there, there's a lot to unpack there, and I have to say kudos to the security guards. The security guards did not descend on the woman. They were more interested in the guy who was harassing, and it looked like could have assaulted the woman. Didn't, but if a guy steamrolling towards you is very angry, you're right to be, as anyone, concerned about what's going to happen. But here's the thing. He's pretending that, you know what, it's dangerous to have her in a mall however many feet, 20 feet away from him without a mask. And what does he do with this risk, this fear he gets in her face? If you believe that an unmasked person is so diseased that they are risking your safety and that of everyone around you, you don't walk right in front of them. This is not about health for these people. It is about control. And again, I am sympathetic. People have bad days. And I, I hate this culture of just whipping out their phone and trying to uh, harass people online because you caught them in a terrible moment. I, and I don't like that. And the reason I'm sharing this one is because he was doing it to her. That's what he was trying to do to her. He was trying to harass her because for whatever reason, she can't wear a mask. And if he doesn't like that, well, you know what? Make sure you stay away from her. He was the only one that had a problem with it. But this is what government's responses to COVID have done. They have created this snitch culture. They have created this culture where you feel like you are a virtuous citizen. If you out your neighbor for having people over, if you report someone to police or to security for not wearing a mask, if you call the health inspectors or cops on this church that you heard something from or this business that you think had opened its doors. I, I've heard from a number of people, law-abiding citizens who don't have a rebellious bone in their body that have completely had enough of this by now. And there seem to be three types of people remaining. There are those who will follow the rules because they're the rules. There are those who will follow the rules and more because they believe in them. They believe that they are rooted in science. And then there are those who want to be the self-appointed enforcers of the rules. As though what's been missing in this pandemic is enforcement. That's what's been missing, these people think. People like them to call others out for not behaving the way they do. And there are going to be people who, whenever mask mandates are lifted, continue to wear masks. There are going to be people who, whenever social distancing measures are restricted, will continue to social distance. And to those people, I say, have at it. If it makes you feel safe, do it. People need to protect themselves. People need to look out for themselves. 
And we should be encouraging people to come up with responses to the world around them that suit their needs. If this woman was trying to get in everyone else's face without wearing a mask, I would be on their side to say, hey lady, back off. If she is, as the video suggests, minding her own business, keeping her distance, and the only people that are getting within her six-foot bubble are those trying to complain that she is not being COVID safe enough, she's not exhibiting enough in the way of pandemic precautions, how are we at all supposed to say that this has anything to do with science at this point? It does not. People are getting off on control and getting off on power. And this permanent emergency is bringing out the worst in this. And this is going to continue once the pandemic's over. And by the way, I don't even know if it's going to be over. I don't think there's going to be a point when Canada says we won. We have a few provinces that are doing that, places like Alberta and Saskatchewan. But we don't have Justin Trudeau saying it's over now. Just this week, the federal government announced it was going to be making amendments to its quarantine plan. So as of July 5th at midnight, you no longer have to go to a hotel quarantine if you are fully vaccinated. And you don't have to do the full 14-day home quarantine if you are fully vaccinated. So beyond the obvious problem here, which is that we've now created different classes of citizenship... What we also have unfolding at this point is government trying to say that it's reopening while doing nothing of the sort. So on July 5th, the few people that are able to travel internationally, if they're fully vaccinated, which has not been an easy feat in Canada, if you want to get vaccinated, they're not going to have to stay at the hotel for $2,000. The one where in Montreal, they don't even put the lock on the door and all that jazz. And then... At the same time, the government has also extended the border shutdown with the U.S. to at least July 21st. And then this morning, Bill Blair said this, explaining when the border will open for people to come into Canada who want to visit. Discussions are ongoing with provincial territory and international partners with the aim of allowing for non-essential travel of fully vaccinated foreign nationals into Canada in the coming months. You heard that right. Bill Blair says it's going to be a matter of months until non-essential travel is permitted in Canada. And what they mean by non-essential travel is someone from Port Huron, Michigan, wanting to go to Sarnia for the day. I don't know why you'd want to go to Sarnia for the day. No offense to the people there. But if someone wanted to go to Sarnia for the day, that's what he's talking about there. So not weeks, months, which means we're talking about until the fall, until the border reopens. And there have been numerous American congressmen and congresswomen that have spoken up about this and said that this is wrong. The one particularly strong, I won't read it, but you can see in the headline here, he called it a load of BS, that we are still dealing with a border closure. And it's Canada. This is entirely Canada's doing. The U.S. would be just as happy to open the floodgates as it has with its air travel. This is why Canadians can fly into the U.S., and they just have to drive back if they've wanted to get out of the hotel quarantine up until this point. So this comes just a few days after the Federal Court of Canada ruled that the hotel quarantine was constitutional. They said it was constitutional. They did not say in the decision that it doesn't violate rights and freedoms, that it's not detention. No, no, no. The decision said, yes, it's detention. Yes, it violates your liberty. Yes, it violates your constitutional freedoms and rights but all of it's justified. This was, I completely admit, not an unsurprising decision. I, I tend to have very low hopes and expectations when it comes to these sorts of things, but the brazenness with which the Chief Justice of the Federal Court approached this was something that I had to share. This is Chief Justice Paul Crampton, who said that these are sacrifices that people are making of their liberty. Sacrifices, that's what he called them. And in doing so, he said that like times of war and other crises, pandemics call for sacrifices to save lives and avoid broad-based suffering. If some are unwilling to make such sacrifices and engage in behavior that poses a demonstrated risk to the health and safety of others, the principles of fundamental justice will not prevent the state from performing its essential function of protecting its citizens from that risk. What he's saying is the flip side of that old quote by Benjamin Franklin, that those who would give up some liberty for a bit of safety deserve neither. And this is something I, I talked about on Friday when the decision came down. I, I've had some more time to read through it over the weekend. 
And the dangerous part of all of this is that it completely licenses the government the next time an emergency comes around or something they classify as an emergency to impose basically any measures and restrictions they want so long as they say it's about public health. And whether you're talking about the government that's locking people up into hotel gulags when they fly into the country, the government that is not allowing people to visit family and friends across the border, the guy that's trying to enforce mask mandates in a mall when no one is in harm's way, all of these things are going to exist long beyond when they are revoked or rescinded. They're going to exist because these are now ingrained in the culture. These are now ingrained, these cultural attitudes of snitching, these cultural attitudes of locking people down, these cultural attitudes of ticketing those who stand up and and say no to this, of ticketing protesters of this. All of these things have become internalized by a country that doesn't even by and large seem like it wants to reopen. And this is one thing that I think shamefully sets Canada apart from other countries around the world. Not talking about people in my circles or people listening in to this show, but broadly in Canadian society, there seem to be huge swaths of people that do not want to reopen, that are not ready. People that essentially are buying what the government's been selling, which is that, no, 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 we tell you when it's ready. We tell you when you're ready. We tell you when the world can go back to normal. You you don't get to tell us, we tell you. And if you look in the United States, if you look in, to some extent, Alberta, Alberta is a great example of this. It was the people that told the government, no, we're not, we're we're not being locked down, which is why I think Alberta took such a heavy handed approach to enforcement because people were saying we're not having any of this. Elsewhere, people seem to be going along for it. They are along for the ride. And this is going to have very significant consequences in Canada whenever something comes up, even something as minor as a flu season comes up, and people will fall right back into what I fear has been the permanently adopted new normal. Not in my books, I can assure you. Before we take a break here, I want to just share something with you very exciting. You know, if you've been listening to this show for a while, that I set out earlier this year to go not to every province in Canada, but to travel and talk to a cross-section of people in many parts of this country who are law-abiding gun owners, people that have been very directly and very significantly affected by the Liberal government's gun bans. And I want to share the first trailer, the first sneak peek at footage from this documentary project I'm making, Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners, which just came out this week. We are closing the market for military-grade assault weapons in Canada. It really is my identity, it really is my culture, and it's every bit as legitimate as anyone else's culture. We're just regular people that go out and and have this as part of our being. We are not the problem, the guns are not the problem, right? It's the public's perception that has become the problem. On one hand, I'm, I'm literally, I'm going to the Olympics, I get to represent Canada. It is one of the greatest privileges that I ever get to do, that I get to wear the maple leaf and represent Canada. It is such a privilege. And on the other hand, I'm so devastated that I have no idea if at some point I'm gonna get thrown in jail because I've missed, I've missed something. Uh, they actually pulled up, they got out, they had their guns drawn, and it was pretty much, I opened the front door and they're like, you're under arrest and you need to come with us. Very excited to share that trailer with you. Thanks for watching. We'll have more details in the coming weeks at www.assaulted.ca. In the meantime, got to take a quick break here when we come back. More of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show.
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. We have been speaking at great length over recent weeks about the taking down of statues, the vandalizing of statues, the uh, denaming of buildings, schools, anything and everything that is named after or honors a person in history seems to be fair game. People whose greatest sin, perhaps their only sin, is living in an era that is not the current one are finding themselves cancelled posthumously by the mob. The one of these that has always disturbed me more than the others is John A. Macdonald. I've talked about him at great length. He's a man for whom history has, I think, a very favorable legacy and a very positive legacy. Whatever the differences are between the 19th century and the 21st century, John A. Macdonald was a beacon of progress and he held confederation together against the odds and the Canada we have today is in no small part due to his efforts back in the 1860s and beyond. And when John A. Macdonald is targeted by the mob, it is particularly disingenuous that a country that affords people the right to speak their mind was founded by the guy they're speaking their mind to criticize. And there was a display on the weekend in Kingston on Friday morning in which the city took down the statue of John A. Macdonald, not just the former Prime Minister of Canada, but also a former Member of Parliament for Kingston. And in the face of this, two men stood out. Men who served this country wearing some military insignia, holding Canadian flags, taking a stand for John A. Macdonald at his feet. A minority display in Canada, given the landscape of these things, but one that stands out all the more. One of these men, Gordon Olkey, is a town councillor in nearby Leeds and Thousand Islands. He joins me now. Gordon, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. So why did you decide to put on your old uniform, carry the flag, and stand at Sir John A. Macdonald's feet the way you did? Well, let me be clear about my order of dress. It's not a uniform because I retired from the Army in 2013. I'm no longer entitled to wear a Canadian Army uniform. But there are certain standards uh, we are, as veterans, encouraged to wear at various times, which is your old regimental beret with cap badge, the decorations you were awarded for service, and um, that's really the only guideline. Um, so I stood as someone who was a soldier at one time. And um, to answer your other question, my friend and I um, just thought we should do something. We thought we should stand and defend Sir John in some way and defend our own heritage in some way, not denying that there was anything um, that should not be corrected, that there were not issues that needed to be addressed. But I don't think one should throw the baby out with the bathwater all the time, which seems to be the trend. It's worth noting that uh, Sir John does not only have a, a significant place in the history of Canada, but in Kingston, in Kingston specifically. In Kingston, he's a local hero as much as he is a national hero. And again, all of that seems insignificant to these people petitioning to have these sorts of statues taken down. Well, I think there's been a failure in this country in the teaching of history. I'm not sure they teach any history anymore. I, I'm old enough to remember the grade 13 history I took, which was essentially European history, which um, taught me a lot of things which have stood me in very good stead in my career where I went around the world and dealt with other cultures. And we took quite, um, in those days, quite comprehensive history in terms of the sense of development of constitutions and the progress of society, you know, from the dark ages or from the classical era up to our present time, that all seems to have gone. And, and people, people follow slogans and fads now and become very emotional about things that are represented to them out of context. And, and that seems to be a big problem in our society, which I, I'm not sure how they're going to address. A lot of the thrust behind this has been ostensibly, or at least purportedly, under the auspices of reconciliation. But there isn't really any reconciliation taking place when people go after statues. And, and you had said uh, when we were corresponding earlier and setting this up that it's an inanimate object. No one's interests are served by its removal. Well, what I heard around me <clears throat> in the crowd... Um, I was taunted. I was shadowed. Um, I heard things like, we've just started. 
watch and see what we do next. This is just the beginning. I heard one woman speaking on a cell phone. I didn't hear the other end of the conversation, of course. And it may just have been emotional blather of the moment. But I heard this woman speaking on the cell phone. We should take that plaque they're taking down now and put it on Sir John A's costume or McDonald's coffin. Sorry, coffin. Now, my family happens to be buried um, five generations within about 40 meters of where Sir John is buried. And I'm wondering um, about future vandalism, future desecration. Now, there was that one flash of someone, someone momentarily, even if they weren't serious, did entertain the idea of desecrating um, McDonald's burial site. But um, I, I was confronted by a young woman who had a coterie of people around her, about four or five people around her. And she was very in my face. And she um, tried to say I was muddled. And you know, obviously I'm an older man. She tried to say I was muddled. And she, it was one of those social justice warrior types. No matter what you say, um, it's because of your male white privilege and all this kind of stuff. You don't understand, you can't understand. And, and that she became rather shrill. And then um, a police constable came to intervene and the police constable, a female, told her you know, uh, this is enough for now. You, you need to, to back away from this gentleman. I intervened with a police constable. I said, no, that's fine. I would like to hear what she has to say. And she seemed to need to have to say something to me. And the constable left. And so the lady went on. And eventually she used the word white supremacist at me. And then she tried to back away from it. But I have a, the friend who stood with me on the um, monument actually heard it and said, no, no, uh, both Gordon and I are trained listeners in our former professions, and we heard you. I heard her. And one of her friends who was with her uh, backed off and said, well, I heard White Supreme, but I didn't hear the ending. So um, she, she and her friends recoiled very quickly after that. But there were things like that going on. But, I mean, that speaks to the level of polarization that has been injected into this, undeservingly so, that that you standing up for a Canadian hero, a Canadian historic figure at the very least, at all ends up in the same breath as white supremacy. I mean, backtracking or not, that that is even part of the discussion now, and that I would say that's probably not a rarity in this, is a, a sign of, of just, I think, how devoid of, of sense and historic knowledge a lot of these people that are leading the charge on this really are. I'm not sure what's actually behind it. The, the thing, I think the thing that disturbed me the most is my sense that the council was intimidated. There was a lot of uh, couching of threats behind um, some of the presentations in that, you know, the, the people around the monument now are actually protecting it. The sense was, if you don't do what we want, another gang will turn up and there'll be violence and they'll take it down. And I've just sent, I've sent you some documents, perhaps you've just seen them, um, where you can see this reflected in, in what city staff and councillors reacted to. So I'm wondering, you know, you had, and there was a recent, there was a local poll taken and about 92% of the people who responded um, were in favor of keeping the statue, perhaps with um, some embellishments in terms of uh, contextualizing history and, and artwork and things. But uh, the majority of people around here would seem to want to keep the statue. I, I want to ask about your, your military service, if I can, Gordon, because when you stand out there and, and are, are representing yourself as a veteran, you are, are someone that has done more to stand up for Canada and Canadian values, I would argue, than a lot of the people that uh, seem to be behind this push to uh, take down the name of, of John A. Macdonald and, and take down his statues. And and I, I was wondering just how you'd respond to that. And I, I know that a lot of people that I've spoken to who have uh, service backgrounds are, are very humble about it. But, but at, the, at the same time, you've done more, I think, to stand up for Canada and, and Canadian values than a lot of these people that uh, were, were cheering for the statue's removal. Well, the first thing I would say is that they have every right to do that. And as a soldier, <laughs> it was part of my duties to defend their right to do that. I don't happen to agree with what they're doing, but they have the right to do it. And members of the forces are, are sworn to protect that right. 
So in, in, in that regard, I don't mind that they were doing what they were doing. I mind that city council appeared to have loaded their special working group with people who would be negative and that they, they took a coward's way out. I think city council should have gone with the first option they had, which was to keep the statue in its place, perhaps modify the pedestal somewhat. That would be subject to negotiation. And then and then add thematic um, items to to give it context and to, to show respect for the other culture that seems to be stressed. And then there was the other option of taking it down and just stashing it away and whatever. They came up with a third option, which was essentially the second option with a few frills. It was a kind of a sneaky way to show that they were they were um, catering to the people like me who wanted to keep the statue, but they really had no intention of doing it. Um, and I think it's it's a giving way to fear. Wherever they would try to put it up again, um, whether in its original place or someplace else, the same sort of encampment would occur probably. And I think they're afraid of that. Um, and then they were afraid, I think, of the, of the veiled threat that if we didn't do what this group wanted, another group much less friendly would turn up and take it into their own hands. Well, I, I also sent an email to the um, mayor asking for a refund of my taxes uh, for the amount that was paid to the city police. If they're not there to protect me, what do we have them for? Or, or city property. Yeah, and the city is no better than so many of the vandals who have uh, gone around destroying and defacing these statues. The difference is that the city has, of course, uh, the backing of being a government when it does this. But the, the result of it is the same, which is that a, a statue that has been there for years uh, taken away because of what I would probably say is a minority view among Canadians. I, I, I agree with you. The other thing about that statue, and this is fairly personal and really far removed from my military service, which is what you started asking me about. Um, when I was small, about three and a half, four, my family was from Kingston. My parents had me there visiting older relatives. And I asked um, my parents, who was the man standing on the wall with all the cannons? And they explained to me who Sir John A. Macdonald was. And my military career took me all over the world and frequently back to Kingston, but wherever I was, that was a landmark to me. That statue meant something to me. Now, my great-grandfather was a businessman in Kingston at the time that statue was put up. And, you know, a lot of people donated a dollar, and people think that's nothing nowadays, but a dollar was the average man's daily wage in 1895. And I, I believe that statue was raised by public subscription. So there's a, there's a sentiment there that ties back to my family and I'm sure many other people in Kingston itself. And th for that reason, I, I thought I should stand in front of it as well as, you know, my own ideology, I suppose. What's been the response since then? Because I, I've had a number of people uh, since uh, I think it was the Canadian press uh, took a photo of, of you and your friend there standing with your flags and, and your berets. I, I've had a number of people send this uh, knowing I've been covering this. And I'm curious what you found uh, in, in the way of response to this, if, if anything. Uh, similar, uh, similar responses. Um, I, I don't use Twitter, but, you know, I can see it on my email and one of the journalists put up a presentation on it, and there was a lot of responses to it. Um, one person accused us of being false veterans because we weren't old enough to be in uh, World War II or Korea. Well, that's true, <laughs> but I did serve in Bosnia and Afghanistan. My friend never made any pretense of that. He was a reservist in the 1970s, but maintains uh, an interest in contact with his old regiment. So he had his beret and, and blazer and blazer crest. But um, the response was, was actually quite heartwarming, really, overall. And, uh, you know, my friends, of course, but many, many people I didn't know had responded to the, the journalist's um, tweet. And uh, it was very, very heartwarming, really. I didn't feel I was alone, <laughs> put it that way. Well, you, you certainly won't, and, and I must say, however you would characterize your display, I, I never would have thought 
that uh, standing with a Canadian flag in front of a statue of Canada's first prime minister would be an act of protest in a way. But here we are. And that's uh, in and of itself quite a, a dark development in this country. Well, I hope the next time someone tries to do that, that other people stand in front of that statue, wherever it is, and, and, and um, actually force a government to change. If, if we have to do the same tactics to preserve our nation that people who seem um, keen to disestablish our nation are using, well, maybe we should. If, if that's polarizing, well, I think we're already polarized. And I think um, if there is an average Canadian, they're probably reticent. They're probably very polite. They're probably hardworking. They're probably more worried about their family at any one time than anything else. And, um, it, it, you know, when you have something like this, I, 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 believe, <laughs> I believe that the, um, the crowd around uh, that was opposed to the statue wanted it down. I believe a lot of them was financed by the Serb, quite frankly. And, uh, well, there you go, you see. It was also timed on a date and time when most um, people were getting ready for work, if not on their way, for, way to work. If they tried to pull it down on a Saturday or Sunday, there might have been a different story. Very well said. Well, I appreciate you taking a stand, and, and also I greatly appreciate your service for this country. Gordon Olke, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. That was Gordon Olke, Councillor Gordon Olke, if you are in the Leeds and Thousand Islands area of Ontario, although his stand in Kingston for John A. Macdonald was simply as someone who loves this country and someone who served the country. And us Canadians, we are all the better off for people like Gordon. So I thank him for coming on. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke with Ali Safavi of the National Council of Resistance of Iran about the NCRI's push for Iranians to boycott the presidential election. And I, I say election with a little bit of hesitation. It's not a real election. The candidates are pre-selected essentially by Iran's Ayatollah. And what the NCRI wanted was low voter turnout to basically rebuke the process and and that's exactly what happened. Now, Ibrahim uh, Raisi was elected as president, as everyone predicted, a man who has blood on his hands. We'll talk about that in a moment. But by and large, not a lot of enthusiasm from Iranians to participate in this process. I want to unpack what happened. Joining me is Shaheen Gobadi, who is with the National Council of Resistance of Iran. Uh, Shaheen, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for having me on. So let's talk first off about the low turnout here, because when you don't have many options, pretty much the only thing you can do to express your displeasure is not show up. I think uh, what happened in Iran was very significant. You have to keep in mind that the figure the regime announced was actually fivefold increase. It was tremendous rigging, uh, uh, even in the numbers. In reality, our information, which is based on more than 1,200 reporters uh, and more than 3,500 clips from polling stations throughout the country showed that less than 10%, and I repeat, less than 10% of the people took part in the election. And as you said, it's not election, it's rather a selection. So uh, it was a total uh, defeat for the regime. And I think it was a very big victory, actually, for the Iranian people, politically and socially. Now. This should not come, I would say, to a big surprise, because you have to remember, Iran has been the scene of three major nationwide uprisings in the last three years. In December 2017, leading to January 2018, in November 2019, and in January 2020. And particularly November 2019, the protest almost, you know, involved more, almost 200 uh, cities throughout the country in all 31 provinces. And the people were chanting death to Ayatollah, death to Khamenei, and down to the dictator. And they were calling for regime change. And the situation was so uh, significant and I think so fierce that the regime had to use 
uh, you know, uh, open fire in broad daylight against the protesters. And in a very conservative estimate, more than 1,500 protesters were killed in a matter of a few days. Now think about it, 1,500 protesters were killed in a matter of a few days, not including thousands who were wounded and not including 12,000 who were arrested. And as I said, basically the people shook the regime to its core and almost you know, pushed it over the cliff. So what you saw last Friday was the other side of the coin of what we have been testing Iran in the last few years. Iranian people want regime change. They have had enough of this regime. And I think what happened last Friday was a good indication of where Iranians stand. Let me ask you, though, Shaheen, if it really matters in the grand scheme of things, because the Iranians can, as they did, not show up to vote. But the result of this is still Raisi in power and Raisi uh, continuing along with what we've seen from the Iranian regime in the last few years. I guess to put a more positive a spin on this question, how do people stay motivated that that form of dissent matters when the result is this man as president? I think... Uh, it's a very legitimate question. You have to keep in mind that why the Supreme Leader Khamenei came to this point to put all this charade and all this, you know, gambit that he had pursued for three decades or so, very much to the regime's interest of, you know, purporting some uh, being, you know, reformists and moderates and, you know, you know, depicting as though there's a camp of moderates and reformers and there are some hardliners. That was the game that Khamenei basically pushed for three decades and reaped the benefits of it. But what caused him to put this aside? What caused him to put aside any even semblance of you know, Ill, uh, competition in this particular case? Why he, from, as you said, from the very beginning was quite clear and evident that you know, Khamenei wants to install his man in this position. I think the answer is again what happened inside Iran. Look. Resorting to the old adage in politics that, you know, all politics is local, for Khamenei, the main issue is to stay in power. And his main enemy are not the Iranian people, and they have shown their desire for change. So his primary concern and the regime's primary concern is to prevent another uprising similar to what happened, as I said, 2019 to 20 and 2018. So that's why he brought Raisi to power with the price of actually purging even a very loyal section of his own regime, which makes the regime much more fragile, much more susceptible to possible uprisings, which are, uh, you know, being at works and are at the wings. But he had no choice but. So what I'm saying here is, actually what happened is very significant, not because how Raisi was installed in this position, but because why he was installed to this position. The dynamics that led to this point, I think the clear indicator is what to expect next. Now, looking forward, no doubt that Khamenei brought Raisi simply to kill more people. Raisi's message is that, you know, no tolerance will be tolerated, no dissent will be tolerated, more bloodletting, uh, iron fist, and more killing. And so far as it pertains to Iran's foreign policy, you have to expect more emphasis on supporting, you know, uh, terrorist groups, more support for Hezbollah, more support for regimes, uh, you know, militias, more emphasis on ballistic missiles, and actually more emphasis in uh, secret program to acquire nuclear weapons. But at the same time, I think the message to the world is that Iran is up for change by the Iranians. So in that sense, I think what happens is very significant. Let me ask you about the foreign policy aspect of this, because one of the things, and I've spoken about this with some of your colleagues in the past, is that Iran has been very negatively affected by sanctions. And, and this is why Iran has pretended to play nice with the West to get sanctions lifted through the, the nuclear uh, deal and, and other forms of, of diplomacy. But the reality is, uh, Raisi has already said he, he has no interest in meeting with the United States. He's taking a hardline view. I, I guess, how can the regime survive if they retreat into that very hardline anti-Western approach that hasn't really worked for them all that well? I think, again, it's a very, very important question, a very good one, actually. Uh, the regime is caught in a rock and a hard place. Uh, and that's a, this uh, is basically uh, very much the paradox that Khamenei is facing. On the one hand, 
he has no choice but to resort more to the regime's own recipe and you know old recipe of more repression and more as I said belligerence and more intransigence. On the other hand, he needs to to uh, get the sanctions relieved actually in order to finance the regime's uh, uh, you know very much sinister and malign activities. So that's where international community comes in. Any notion that by providing concession to the regime, being nice to them. Uh, will lead them to reciprocate is total naivete. I think bringing Raisi to power, a man who only a part of his resume is being directly involved in massacring 30,000 political prisoners just in summer of 1988. I repeat the number, 30,000 political prisoners who are already serving the terms according to the regime's own courts were all brought to kangaroo trials last from two minutes to five minutes, sent to the gallows simply because they were still adherent to their beliefs on supporting the Mujahideen, the People's Mujahideen Organization of Iran, or MEK, because you know, uh, they were the arch enemy of the regime and they are the regime's main uh, you know, organized resistance. And uh, the fatwa was basically to eliminate them. Now, only a part of Raisi's resume is directly and personally as a man of a four-man team of death committee in Tehran, sent thousands of prisoners to the gallows in Tehran, not uh, withstanding, as I said, this massacre in November 2019 that he again oversaw as the head of judiciary, judiciary chief, just this past November 2019. So obviously when you bring that kind of a person to power, it means that you want to continue with the same path. So I think if there was any justification to appease the mullahs, with the hope that somehow miraculously they, somebody can pull uh, you know rabbit out of the hat and you see moderates or reformists non-existence as they are uh, ascend and take the upper hand that's absolutely not the case anymore they're nowhere to be found basically they are no player so the regime is showing his real face as real nature to the world so there's no grounds for any appeasing, providing concession. And I think to our contrary, the least is expected from the West to hold the regime accountable, hold them to account for all their crimes, in particular Raisi. And that's exactly what Amnesty International announced on the day that Raisi was selected. They said, look, this man should not be the president. This man should be basically brought uh, to justice. Here in Canada, back in, in 2013, all members of parliament from every party voted to condemn the 88 massacre that you just spoke of. And, and you know very well, in politics, it's hard to find issues that everyone agrees on. So there was some unanimity there. Now, I would take that now, eight years later, to say that there's already a record that uh, governments, foreign governments, cannot legitimize and, and recognize this man as a leader, that he has to be held to account. But we've also seen a very concerning trend in the West of appeasing Iran and believing that they can be brought to the table. And, and I'm curious if you think that the brutality in Raisi's uh, history, and, and not far history, we're talking about very recently here, do you think that can change this dynamic of appeasement from the West that we've often seen? Because th there's no way they can legitimize this man. Or is that being a little bit too optimistic on my part? No, you're not too optimistic. I think this is the least the West should do. Look, look at yesterday's uh, press conference by Raisi, his first presser. He said not only condones what he, he did in 1988, he says he should be praised for it and he should be rewarded for it. No, what does that mean? That means he wants to continue the same policy, that he wants to do more executions. And at the same time, he was very much trying to evade his you know, background and his uh, record. So the message to the international community, to the West in general, in Canada in particular, is very simple. Hold them to account. Hold, you know, end the impunity. And this is not too optimistic. This is just the minimum moral standards. A man who has 30,000 executions under his watch. How could anyone take as a, you know, reasonable partner? or interlocutor. And, and you have to remember, in 1988, people could claim they didn't know. 
but they cannot make that claim in 2021. People do know. This is the world of, you know, communications. This is the time of, you know, internet. So the record is out there. So people, and I think it's very important that the Western countries realize that silence, silence would only embolden Raisi and Khamenei to continue this path. But at the same time, if they speak out, if they say, look, they, they don't recognize this selection, they don't recognize this man as the president of a grand country like Iran, I think the message will be well received with the mullahs and Raisi. And you have to keep in mind, the regime is very weak. The economy is in, very much in shambles. So this regime is very much prone to pressure, very much in prone, with an explosive society, with a bankrupt economy, with international isolation. Obviously, Khamenei has to think not only twice, but three times and four times. So what I'm saying is the regime is very prone to international pressure, and one does not need to be very optimistic. All governments should do is to just hold the regime to account. Shaheen Gobadi of the National Council of Resistance of Iran, and I should say coming up July 10th to 12th, the NCRI is hosting its free Iran World Summit, and we'll certainly have coverage of that on True North. Shaheen, thank you so much for your time. Good to speak with you. Thank you, Andrew, and I wish you and all your viewers and listeners a very good day. Thank you for having me on. Shaheen Gobadi of the NCRI. And I should say, if you're interested in this, my colleague Candace Malcolm had a, a fantastic column about this in the Toronto Sun, not just the issues that are, are facing the Iranian people, but also the Canadian connection, unpacking, because I hadn't heard of uh, prior to reading her column that 2013 vote in Parliament to unanimously condemn with all parties uh, this man's conduct, effectively, and now he is representing Iran on the world stage. My thanks to you all for tuning into the show. We will be back in just a couple days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.